Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor-writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity and, of course, pleasure. Today on The Pleasure Podcast, we welcome Sankita Pillai, founder of Soul Sutras and fighter of Indian patriarchy. Sangeeta developed Soul Sutras, an online feminist platform, and the award-winning Masala podcast for South Asian women to tell their stories openly without shame or fear. Sangeeta talks to us about growing up in the slums of Mumbai and of being expected to follow the familiar path of South Asian women of obedient daughter, wife and mother. Sangeeta fought these expectations from a young age, being the first woman in her family to work and to decline marriage, but not without significant personal cost. Sangeeta tells us about her sexual awakening, her early lessons of nudity and shame, and the deification of boys that is endemic in Indian culture. We talk about reclaiming the sexual heritage of India and the Kama Sutra for a great seductive sexual experience, and how sometimes the bravest route can often be the loneliest one. I grew up in Mumbai in a very traditional Indian family in what was essentially a slum. So we were very poor. I was the first girl in my family to ever work. So that tells you how traditional the family was. As a young South Asian woman, this is in the 80s, right? I was not an independent being. I was being brought up to a particular trajectory, as was every woman that I knew at that point. You went to college, you got yourself a degree, and then you learned how to cook, and then you were married off to the first kind of guy that came along. Then you had the babies, and that was your life. There wasn't even a concept of a deviation from that norm. So everything around us was kind of geared to that, whether it was the movies we watched, whether it was the magazines we read. Everything was about guarding yourself, kind of you're a woman, you're responsible for making sure you stay pure almost for the man you are to marry. So if somebody groped you, you did something to make that happen. We were listening to your amazing podcast, um, the Masala podcast, um, and in episode one, you talk about how it was very unusual where you grew up to have mirrors in the bathroom. So actually seeing the naked body at any point, it was very unusual. Being naked isn't ever done, even as a child. The second a child jumps out of the bathroom and there's like, Chi-Chi, cover yourself up, Chi-Chi is dirty. And that's the kind of word that's used a lot if you grow up in a Hindi-speaking household, is chi-chi. So nakedness is equal to shamefulness. The concept of owning your own body doesn't exist. So you wouldn't see like your mother it naked is, or sisters? No, or... N- never. Now thinking about it, actually, that's really weird because as a teenager, you need to look at yourself and say, oh my God, my body's changing. And that episode that I described in the podcast, 
I literally happened to see myself in the, the you know, the tap is like that small. And I was walking, I was like, oh my God, what is that? And then I was like, those are breasts. And they're like, they're my breasts. When did I grow breasts? You know, it was like this huge shock to me to see myself as a woman because I had never done that. So it's that kind of detachment culturally of not connecting to your body because your body isn't your own. I wanted to talk to you about the word chi-chi because my mum used to use that word to refer to when you wanted to go for a poo. So I never understood it in any other context. So when you say chi-chi, to me, it's like, oh, okay. So the fact that it's dirty is very feculent, very, very, right. Like the most dirty you can possibly imagine. So the fact that this is being attached to nudity or or bodies is so strident and so sort of uh, negative that you're automatically going to move away from it. Every time there's a child that takes its shirt off and the mum says, chi-chi, put it back on. Every time if you touch your private parts and your parents are saying, chi-chi, that's chi-chi. So that is going to get burnt into your psyche. And I feel like that kind of conditioning goes very deep. So it's going to be very difficult then to go to a place where you look for pleasure. And on top of that, not only is it dirty, but then you have sharam. So you have shame. Like added as another extra level of this onion of horridness. It is so deeply ingrained into our culture. Sharam, shame for bringing a disrepute into your family. Shame for shaming your parents. Shame for not doing what is expected of you. How can the honour of an entire family rest in one woman's vagina? I mean, you know. (laughs) So shame rests squarely on the shoulders of women in, in South Asian culture. Like in all my 20s, I thought I was an absolute dishonor to my family because I was like, I'm not having an arranged marriage. I'm going to cut my hair really short. Uh, I'm going to wear clothes that you might not approve of. I'm going to work in advertising because that's what I want to do. I was a person all the neighborhood aunties would talk to my mother about. So, you know, shame permeates your skin, your DNA, every part of you. And shame is heavy. It rests very heavy. It really hobbles our ability to access pleasure and sexuality and sensuality. Because if you're coated in shame all the time, how on earth do you enjoy yourself? If you're told that your your body is not for for someone else to enjoy or for yourself to enjoy, it's almost reprehensible. I think it's almost like a a version of harm that you're doing to children because they develop into these people that have this horrible duality of going, I hate myself, but I want this. And how do you ever put that together? Absolutely. And then the other aspect to that, when you're growing up, you have no option but to lie to your parents. That's another layer of shame, right? So you can't like have a boyfriend or a girlfriend uh, at that point. So you've got to lie. So it's a huge burden, I think, that we carry. And it's not just South Asians who grew up in South Asia. Like I find this with a lot of Asians that I work with, this kind of duality of existence, of being one person being this kind of British or American person outside, but being an Indian person at home and then lying because you can't reveal those parts of yourself to your family. And it completely, I like the word you've used, Anand, hobbles your ability to enjoy your body, to kind of enjoy someone else's body, to kind of be present even in your body. How do you think it might be possible to start to chip away at that shame and start to sort of I suppose, embody one's identity as a whole, as opposed to in this fractured way we've been describing. I suppose about three years ago, I had 
sort of like a breakdown, I think, is, is the best way to describe it, where I had like bad mental health stuff. And I had to kind of look into myself and I kind of looked at a, a lot of the things that stopped me from being the person that I was. Um, also started dating here and had a lot of sex. And I, thought, and I found that sex was amazing. Why was this, you know, why was I not doing this before? Learning how good sex felt in my own body, how wonderful orgasms made me feel. And that led to kind of a questioning of like, but then why was I taught all of this stuff about like, oh, that's dirty and you don't do this. And I'm like, but this is so good. Why are we not doing this more? And I started to think about other women like me. So I really wanted to start challenging it. So I started writing it as a blog and I was just writing things down about the pressure to be mothers, you know, like why? Why must we all be mothers? And from there, I started running writing workshops where women come together. When you get kind of women in a room and you create a safety, women open up, they talk to each other. And we find that our experiences are very similar, that the things we're fighting, the taboos we might be lumbered with, each of us, have kind of resonance with each other. And from there is the sense that we're not alone. I did a piece of theatre based on that at Rich Mix and the response was phenomenal, like all these women coming up to me to say, oh, my God, you know, this is amazing. And I didn't know we could say this stuff. And it's so good to see this kind of expressed and safely expressed. And there's a huge sense of, I think, validation for our experiences when you see it on a stage or in a book or in a film to see ourselves represented, to see our stories represented and to believe that they're worthy of that representation, it really kind of opened the floodgates, I think, for me. And then I just started looking at different ways to create more spaces for women like me. I would really like to go back to what Indian culture actually was. If you look at the Kama Sutra, right, this was written in the third century, okay, and it's not about sexual positions like it is in the West. It's like, oh, you hang off the ceiling and then you do this thing. It's not that at all. <laughs> you know, it's a whole tome about sensuality and pleasure. And it is pages upon pages of how to give your partner pleasure. If we go back to our culture as this is where we come from, you know, there are chapters on how to leave a nail mark under your lover's left breast. Oh. You know, it's that detail. So there's chapters on, and it's very kinky if you if you want to use that word. Like there's modes of slapping, there's modes of biting, there's marks on the body, there's positions, of course, but that's just one part of it. And sex wasn't just something you did in bed. It was, if you look at the Kama Sutra, it's this kind of art that every kind of civilized citizen needed to develop. It's like you learn to play a musical instrument and you learn to how to be good in bed. Uh -huh. Because it was absolutely a requisite for being a cosmopolitan individual. I mean, it was obviously written for a man and by a man, but it has quite, I think, revolutionary ideas about female sexuality. Because there's a bit that I remember reading which said, if your husband doesn't give you pleasure, you can leave the marriage, you know, go find somebody wow. else. And that is huge, you know, coming from, if you look at where it was written. Um, I didn't know it was written by a man for, for men. I didn't know that. Because it's a guide for a cosmopolitan male. 
It's incredible. Uh, it's like it's pleasure. like the world's the world's first sort of self help sex book. It's like a, exactly. a, Hain, a Haynes manual, but in a really exactly. elaborate, elegantly re- um, illustrated yeah. way. Yeah, and it's also really beautiful. Like there, there yeah. passages are like um, you know when your lover comes to visit, what do you do? So you put the petals on the bed, and then you take her outside. You look at the moon, and you recite poetry. Then you might come back have a little bit of sex and you mop her brow then you give her like a drink then you go out and have another discussion then you come back you know it's not just boom 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 we're off you know there's a whole kind of aesthetic which i love and that's our culture i heard you reading an extract um of the kama sutra in one of your uh, podcast episodes and and oh, you yeah, were describing how the guy might prepare a room for sex with his other male friends, which I thought was wonderful. And what you might expect the other way around, a a gender flip on that. You might expect a woman and her women to be preparing this room, but actually it's sort of the boys together preparing this sort of flowery boudoir for for sex. And the tenderness that comes with that, that actually it feels very unmacho. It is not about conquest. It is not about... I bedded this woman. It is about, oh, look how much pleasure I gave this woman. And look how I made this experience for her. And that's a whole other, you know, way to look at sex. And even things like it talks about men taking lovers and women taking lovers. And that was very much part of the social more of that time. And even with having an affair with somebody who's married, it describes how you must do it in a way that, and obviously it talks about, taking a female married lover it says you know if you are to leave a, a mark on her body you you make sure that you leave it in a place that she knows and you know but her husband can't see you know <laughs> it's pretty you know out there i think it's glorious um, yeah absolutely beautiful and i love reading the kamasutra and i'll keep going back to it every now and then because every time i get frustrated with kind of oh my god but why are we stuck in these ideas i have to kind of remind myself that we weren't always like this Somewhere along the line, they changed. And it's not just one book, the Kama Sutra. It's like, there's a whole host of books. There's something called the Anangaranga. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was written a couple of hundred years later after the Kama Sutra. It takes a lot of inspiration from the Kama Sutra. But it is a tome for married lovers. So how do you, I loosely quote from it, how to enjoy your wife as if she were a thousand wives. So how do you keep it varied? Like how do you, and it's very, again, it says on the, third cycle of the moon her body feels she's going to be really sensitive on her left thigh or whatever you know it's that specific wow so it's it's getting a man to really think about a woman's body to think about what gives her pleasure because that is his duty and to break out of those sort of um, formulaic sexual encounters that yes. we can often fall into in long-term relationships yeah yeah i think it's important to remind ourselves that that is south asian culture as well and if we could find ways to kind of go back to that and say that we were liberal, we were sexual, we were sensual creatures a long time ago. And that's our culture. What were the sort of the modelling that you were getting from your parents in India, in Mumbai, in the 70s and 80s that you were learning from them in terms of sex and relationships? Sex did not exist for me. <laughs> that was the message. And not just parents. And I think it's 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 more societal than that all the Indian aunties together in in a voice is I always I kind of hear this in my head it's like if they see you coming back late from work or from a party 
there's always a, she's going to be ruined, you know, nobody will marry her. You know, there's this whole kind of ideology of what is a good Indian woman. And I talk about this a lot in some of the work that I do, that very narrow space that we occupy in the culture. So to then go from there to have an idea about that you have a body, that you have a right to pleasure, it's so far removed from where I grew up. Uh, in that time. There's such a difference between what you're describing and of course this sort of objectification, this hypersexualized hourglass figure in Bollywood movies, which I'm trying to marry yeah. together. And of course that those sorts of contradictions are uh, always yeah. the foundation of, yeah. <laughs> but, of that sort of hypocrisy. But here's what I find really interesting about Bollywood is it is hypersexualized. It's sort of there'll be like an item number where you know which is where the girl is dancing in like very skimpy outfits. But the pleasure is for the man. It's never for the woman. So even there, female pleasure isn't even an idea. It's for so the men. So was that part of your sex education in terms of sex is not available to you until, you until you get married? But when you are married, my God, you have to know how to please him. No, no, not even that. Because that would mean taking control of your sexuality, wouldn't it? It would mean understanding what makes you happy. But none of that exists. So the kind of wisdom is that you get married, your husband takes his kind of divine right between your legs and you just lie there and you think of India, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> So there is no volition, there is no desire, female desire doesn't exist as an idea in traditional Indian culture. Now, having said all this, it is changing a little bit. There is, I've seen some incredibly uh, brilliant work coming out of India recently. There's a film called Lust Stories on Netflix. Oh my God, this is incredible. Oh my God, it is. It blew my mind. I watched it and I was so excited and so happy. So there, it's four kind of mini films created by pretty well-known directors, all about female pleasure. The fourth one is this kind of traditional bride that gets married off to this guy and he's just not able to please her in bed. And her friend gives her this vibrator. And it's a really funny one where the vibrator remote control ends up in the granny's hands. And so she's got this vibrator stuck up her fanny and she's walking around and her granny's going like that. And she's going like, oh, my God, I'm having an orgasm. But all four of them are about female pleasure and female orgasms. I've never seen an Indian woman have an orgasm on screen. That was the first time I saw that. So I was absolutely thrilled by that. And was there a backlash at all? I haven't heard anything, actually, which makes me really heartened I think to think that maybe now we are ready there was another um, Amazon series called Made in Heaven there's a gay relationship there's a guy who can't tell anybody he's gay but he's having all these lovers and eventually comes out and quite a lot of graphic sex open and wonderful you know and it makes me feel really really excited I think and so there is good creative work about sex and sexuality and people and women and pleasure and all of these things so it is very heartening to see. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I mean, you talk a lot about women and the expectation of women, and a lot of that comes from perhaps being in a patriarchal society. I wanted to talk a bit about the deification of men and of boys. Yes. And how that affects how women are treated or how women behave. So I think in traditional Indian culture, if you're born with a penis, you're like God. You know, that's pretty much all it takes, right? From the moment the boy is born, there's celebration, there's sweets distributed, not so much when the girls are born. And the boy in very traditional Indian families, like, are told and are taught that they are super important. The meals are brought to them and they won't even pick up a glass of water. I've seen this in families where the boy sits down to the sister, go get him a glass of water because that's how patriarchal traditional Indian society is. Absolutely. So in my family, um, for example, all the women would cook together. The men would be sitting down watching the football or the cricket or whatever it was. When it was time to eat, the men would eat first and then the women and children would eat afterwards. Uh, and same. trying to break that, trying to get my mum to sit at the table with us, trying to get yeah. our, my cousin's stuff, it's, it, it's impossible. And the thing is, if you grow up all your life believing that you're somehow better, so then you act in certain ways as well. And I think this kind of South Asian male patriarchy is harmful to men as well, because men are never allowed to express anything that might be remotely seen as vulnerable. I mean, you can't say... Um, that you're anxious or that you might be experiencing grief. There is no room for it. And that's hugely damaging. And of course it damages women because, you know, everything in kind of traditional Indian society is geared to a man. They always say to you, oh, he's a boy. It doesn't matter what time he comes home. But you're a girl. It really matters that you're home before dark, as if like sex only happens in the dark, you know. (laughs) Which is what I always say, but you think I can't do anything in in the day. I can do whatever I like, you know, you wouldn't know. But this kind of deification, I absolutely get it. Um, I grew up also in a family where my mum would cook, my father would come, he would get the best bits of the food. Then he would get up, my mother would pick up the plate and she would eat in the same plate. You know, even now I go into like South Asian households, all the women are in the kitchen uh, talking about oh, I don't know, recipes or whatever we're supposed to be talking about. And all the men are sitting there talking about like politics and uh, money or whatever it is. And I go into those rooms because I want to be in that room. And not because they're interesting, but I'm like, I I want to take up space in these rooms because it's important that we do. Because it still carries on. Because again, the kids in those families are going to grow up thinking that's normal. And that's not. Was there a sense of real injustice for you growing up? massively I think that's I was an absolute fighter like I feel like I have fought all my life from the time I was about 15 and I saw all this stuff around me and I thought I'm not going to be one of these people and this is not going to happen to me which then meant challenging and challenging and challenging and it was ex- exhausting 
Um, I was always fighting. I remember fighting with my parents. I remember fighting with my uncles who would say things like, oh, but you're a girl. You know, you shouldn't be doing X or Y. Oh, but you're a girl. You walk too loudly. I mean, they thought I was like, I just stomp too much. I remember fighting with my uncle. I'm like, how can you tell me how I should walk? Oh, but you're a woman. You should be softly treading or whatever, you know. So it's constant. And in my life, I was battling, I think, from the time I was 15 to when I eventually left home at 29. And again, the idea of a woman leaving home doesn't happen. She has to get married to leave home. You just don't say one day, get up and say, oh, mom, dad, I'm off. You know, it doesn't happen like that. Not then. I don't know if it's changed now, but when I grew up, it certainly did. Were there conversations about arranged marriages happening around you? Oh, Oh, God, yeah. From the time I was about 19, I think, they started telling me, like, you need to find somebody, you need to marry you off. And for some reason, my dad would produce these CVs of men. And CVs? I'm like, what are supposed to? Like work CVs. CVs. Like, you know, like work <laughs> CVs. And I'm like, how am I supposed to judge this person that I'm supposedly supposed to spend my entire life with on the base of, like, a CV? Like, what does that tell me about this person? But there was a lot of pressure to say yes to somebody before you kind of the expiry date <laughs> on your body which was kind of like as long as you got to sort of 26 28 you were kind of old huh. and the proposals would dry up is what they would say so there was a lot of pressure so it was really hard kind of staying in the house saying I wasn't going to do those things and I was going to do the thing I wanted which is kind of work like I wanted kind of hang out with the friends that I wanted to hang out with it was really really hard did you have any role models um, who were kind of trailblazers like you were? <laughs> no, sadly, I really, really wish I did. I didn't even know the, the word feminism existed until probably my 30s, actually, because we didn't read, you know, feminist books. We didn't read anything that had feminist ideology at all, I think. So I felt very alone in my battles but it felt very much a battle for survival for me. It was very much because my father was abusive and my mother was kind of stuck and we were stuck in that kind of household where you couldn't get out. So I think for me, it was very much a matter of I don't want this life. So if I don't want this life, I've got to really fight to make sure I don't end up like my mother. So it was very much a matter of really base survival. It was very, very lonely because no one else was saying the things I was saying. And I'd feel sorry for my parents as well, because I was saying this stuff. I'm like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I don't agree with this. And nobody else at that time was saying that. So I think they found me really weird as well. It's like, why is this girl saying all of this stuff? We don't understand her. I, def so I genuinely feel loved by my parents. But I think the experience of love that I've received from them is not necessarily in observing physical affection that I would, I now receive, for example, from my partner, from my friends, etc. So I'm just wondering about just because we you, you touch upon it in, in in some of your podcasts about how South Asian families show love. There is zero physical demonstration of love in South Asian culture. We just don't do that. Now again, I have no idea where it comes from, but you don't touch, you don't hug, you don't show any form of physical affection. You show affection by food. So you cook. You cook and you cook and you cook. Like your child comes home from, I don't know, school or university. You've got breakfast and you've got lunch. Then you've got samosas in the middle. Then you've got something else. And that is how you show love. 
but there is no other expression of it within South Asian culture. So even today, like I've started now hugging my brothers and they go really weird. They're like, oh God, what are you doing? You know, because we've not grown up with it. And I think it's a really sad thing that we haven't grown up with it. Because I think as adults, you've got to learn how to do it because you've not been taught this thing as a child. And I look at kind of non-South Asian families and I think how lovely it is to be hugged. You know, as a child, how wonderful. Or for to see your parents hugging each other. That's a very natural expression of love. But somehow in our kind of culture, like a hug is equal to sex, like they'll be shagging. You know, like, I don't know what it is. It's this weird kind of some sort of boundary that you cross as soon as you touch another human being. It's interesting um, that it comes I, so naturally and instinctively to you, um, despite having grown up in that environment where it, it's yeah. so taboo still. Yeah, I don't know how. And I'm just grateful, I think, for whatever that is inside me. But I love hugging my boyfriend. I love hugging my friends. I love it because it's this kind of rush you get. And it's good for us, all these endorphins in our bodies. You know, it's so good for us. So I was wondering what extended family who are either in India or who are, who are here, who are still abiding by far more traditional values and family structures, make of your life, especially now as a very independent, successful woman in your 40s. Like how do they expect you to behave now, um, now that they don't necessarily have the control over you? Um, and, and how does that make you feel? They react by not saying a thing. So it is absolute silence. So if I post, for example, if I post a picture on my Facebook and there's a lot of extended family on my Facebook of me, I don't know, looking at a flower, there's like a hundred likes, right? But if I put up a video of me talking about the work that I do, there is nothing. It is zero. So there is absolute silence because I think they don't know what to make of me and they can no longer tell me how to live my life, which they could in my 20s. So I think they probably find it really difficult. And my immediate family, the only people that I'm really close to, my brothers, who are more or less supportive. But again, there's such a sense of embarrassment. And I now send anything that I do, I'll send links to them to say, hey, look at this thing I've done. I was in the Evening Standard. I did this or whatever. And they'd be like, yeah, great. And that's pretty much it. Nothing else. So even they, one lives in Ireland, one lives in Singapore, they don't know what to do with it. And they don't know what to make of me, I think. There's a really narrow pathway that defines success for South Asian families. Absolutely. And if Absolutely. you step off this path, then you are not necessarily persona non grata because actually you know, your family often love you anyway, but they don't get it. And because it's not a success in their eyes, you feel like a failure often. I think because the definition of success, exactly like you said, Nanam, is so narrow. So you are a success if... You are a banker, lawyer, doctor, have a massive big house, an SUV uh, and lots of money in the bank, then you're a success. You know, that's kind of it. And a lot of South Asian people have that and good for them. But if you do anything outside of that and like what I'm doing at the moment, I don't even have a job. So they're like, you don't have a job. <laughs> what? You know, I don't have a job job. Um, and then you add to that as a woman, what are the markers of success? Family, children, marriage, big house, big car, right? None of those, I don't have any of those. So 
I am not a success, I think, in my family's eyes. And I don't think I ever will be. And that's quite hard to kind of accept. And it does make me feel a little bit sad sometimes. Like I'm doing all of this stuff, but nobody really appreciates any of it. But I'm learning to get that validation from friends because family is never going to give it to me. And of course, all the voices of all those women who are coming to you and are saying thank you for sharing these stories. Absolutely. And also, when you grow up, your sense of self is so hard to get to as a woman in the culture. Like you've got to work so hard to kind of say, I'm worthy. I deserve I don't know, a life that makes me happy, pleasure, whatever your markers might be. It is very hard to work to that. And then when you don't get the validation, it's doubly hard because you're already battling a sense of self-worth that might not be as good as it should be. But what keeps me going is exactly what you just said, Naomi. Like each email that I get, I kind of treasure it because it's like, oh my God, the work I'm doing is important and it's helping people in this specific way so but I've got to keep doing that because that's where then the validation and then also the kind of drive to keep doing this comes from so the kind of network that I function in is very very important to me. Talking about duality we were talking earlier Mm. um, is there ever a part of you which ever doubts or goes why couldn't I have just been, in inverted commas, the good girl and have just followed the rules and just done the arranged marriage and just been accepted by the family? And maybe maybe the trade-off is, you know, I wouldn't have had my identity in the same way as I do now. I'm not necessarily doing the work for wider community, which I think is essential, brilliant work. But, but is there ever parts of you that think, could I have done this potentially easier life? Absolutely. So, I know that the path I've chosen is a very hard, very lonely path, right? Um, If I had gone along like a lot of my friends had, you know, marriages, kids, whatever, it's a lot easier. Not only is it hard to do, but it's incredibly lonely. I never fit anywhere. Like I don't fit within Indian families because I don't have that kind of identity of mother, wife, daughter, whatever. And I don't fit in entirely in British culture either. So I think the price I pay for the life I have chosen, and I have chosen this and I will choose this again, is loneliness. There is a sense of loneliness, deep loneliness within me that I've always, always had. So there are sometimes fleeting thoughts where I'm like, oh, it would have been so much easier. Yes, it would have. But I cannot even conceive of a life where I wouldn't be this person. Like I have fought so hard to be this person from the time I can remember. I think if I'd kind of gone that way, I think I'd have been really miserable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I would have probably made everybody else miserable around me. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for choosing the harder path. We need people like you. Oh. <laughs> thank you so much. I think thank it is you. very easy to follow an easier path. It's certainly what I did. I just became a doctor because that's what my parents wanted. It wasn't what I wanted. Mm. I had no idea what I mm. wanted. But at mm. seven, my dad said, you're going to become a doctor. And like, all right, dad. But Anand, wouldn't you argue that you also um, were true? Because really what we're talking about is being true to ourselves, aren't we, really? About, yeah. and, and who we are and knowing, finding out who we are and following that path. And wouldn't you say that you also did that? Yes, but I took the easy way out because I did that second. Okay. We're talking about your sexuality, of course. I, 
I really enjoy being a doctor now. However, would it be the thing I would have chosen 25 years ago? And if I could train mm. to be something else, would I do that? Maybe. So, so the person I am now is as I want it to be, or is, is it hopefully evolving into the person I want mm. it to be? But a lot of that is based on the fact that I've made it easier for myself mm. by being the, the golden mm. boy I should have been. Right. I became a doctor. I was successful. Therefore, it was more acceptable for me to be homosexual. I softened mm. the blow for my parents and the cultural blow. It already helped that my mum walked out with my dad. So, you know, I, I, the, the, my, my position in the community had already been tainted and challenged by mm. that. Okay. And therefore, I didn't yeah. have that work to do. My mum had already done the hard work of going, my family doesn't act like this or behave like this. We are different. Mm. And so our entire family are tainted by difference. And actually, I now embrace that. But as a young person, it was hugely challenging going, oh, mum, why the hell did you have to do that? Because look what's happening to us. But actually, I never voiced that to my mum because actually I was super supportive of her making her decision because it was something that was important to her. Mm-hmm. You know, and, a, and a woman leaving her husband is you know, another level of sh- sharam. It's massive. <laughs> I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's massive. And, and so, you know, it, it, I, have, I have great admiration for women making choices that challenge the patriarchy, basically. And I don't mean to sound like an arsehole about that. I don't, I'm not like, you know, but, no, no, but no. I, I just think it's so incredibly important for people to achieve what they need to, because actually it's important for them to evolve into the person they need to be. Yeah. And I think um, it is doubly hard, triply hard for women, whatever you want to call it, like your mum, to leave the marriage. It's hugely difficult. And for any woman to kind of deviate, because it's such a narrow space that we're given in our culture. I think in my case, I almost didn't have a choice. It feels like this is the person I have always been inside, whether whether it was when I was five years old or 15 or 20. And I had a very clear almost fire within me that made me do all of this. And it's completely instinctive. I've never thought about it, but I've always been this. I don't know where it comes from, but this is who I've always been. It's important that within South Asian culture, we keep challenging this stuff. We keep talking about the things we're told not to talk about. All the taboos in our culture, right? Whether it's sex or being queer or being gay or having your periods or motherhood or not to be a mother or all of these things or nipple hair i love talking about nipple hair <laughs> bane of my bloody life <laughs> we should have a whole podcast about nipple hair i think <laughs> i'd be up for that but you know <laughs> let's do it but it's on a more serious note it is important because the more you talk about it the more you normalize it the more okay it becomes for all of us to speak about this. Mental health, that's another one, you know, where we don't talk enough about it. There is a lot of sharam, shame in our community about mental health. And it just, why do we carry on like this? Why do we not take the bits of our culture that we love? I don't know, saris and samosas and whatever we love, Bollywood or whatever it might be. And then put away the things now that we do not, that do not serve us anymore. The shame, patriarchy, um, this weirdness around sex or physical affection. Just let's just get that out and go back to the bits that we like. Kama Sutra, let's go back to Kama Sutra. You know, I think it's very important to do that. 
Find out more about Sangeeta's inspiring work and the fantastic Masala podcast at www.soulsutras.com. All links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Visotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.